I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, the traders have Georgia on their minds. Polls closing in less than two hours from now. And two key Senate runoffs will break down what's at stake for your money straight ahead. Plus, the auto stocks kicking into high gear will tell you what sent these names into overdrive. How our traders are trading it later. Tastes like profits. The McDonald's tripling down in the fast food chicken wars, but our investors loving it. We're digging in straight ahead. But we start off with a big breakout in big energy. Crude oil surging 5%, closing above 50 bucks a barrel for the first time since last February. The move driven by Saudi Arabia, shocking the market by unexpectedly cutting production. Energy stocks rallying along with the commodity. The XLE ETF posting its best day in more than a month. But the chart master says beware of this big breakout. Crude realities are about to set in. We want to go straight to the chart master, Cornerstone Macros, Carter Worth. Carter, happy new year. Happy New Year, Melissa. Thank you. Well, just three charts. Uh, the first, uh, take a look. I've drawn one line here, and what we would characterize this as is a rally to a difficult level, meaning with today's strength, just slightly over 50 before backing away, uh, WTI undid all of its weakness associated with the pandemic, returned exactly to its late February level. Now look at the second chart. Uh, this is this exact same chart, just another way to draw the lines. You have a well-defined sequence here of lower levels. Uh, basically, in September 2018, we were at or near 70, and you can see that. Then in December of 19, we were at 60, plus or minus, and now we've rallied to 50, 70, 60, 50. Uh, it's a rally to a difficult level. Um, sometimes there is the buy the rumor, sell the news. Uh, crude could have been up $10 a barrel, but it stopped not randomly right at that line. And I think that's important. The third and final chart. Now, this is a two panel. It's the same thing we just looked at, the top being uh, WTI, the front contact, which is uh, February. And the bottom panel is relative performance to a broad basket of commodities, meaning uh, the bottom panel is a basket with zinc and nickel and aluminum and corn and wheat and gold and silver and hogs and cattle, um, coffee and cotton. And what we know is that crude's move, um, impressive as it is, is simply a move in, a, in an ongoing downtrend. And so we're thinking you faded here. Uh, the, uh, the big move, news related, yes, is not likely to carry through. And just one other thing uh, before we quit, it's not uh, random that if you look at where crude closed today, 49.89 or thereabouts, Christmas crude, 12 months out, is at 48.55, hmm. lower than the front contract. We think there's a message there. Carter, um, some might see this chart and, and see your call as a call on the broader markets. Is, that, is there a correlation there? I don't think so. I mean, okay. I think this is very specific. We know there was news. We know it was, you know, sort of unilateral decision, a million barrels a day, I guess it is, from the Saudis. And so, uh, and there was a big move. It moved 5%. But it's not random where it petered out uh, if you draw the lines. All right. Carter, great to see you. Thank you. Likewise. Carter Worth, the chart master. Guy Adami, would you agree with Carter? And do you take it as a sign? that maybe oil is, is telling us something if you believe it's going to break down. 
Yeah, one of the first things I learned on this show is don't get too wonky inside baseball. But what Carter was speaking about is the backwardated oil market. And you could look at it one of two ways. I actually would look at it and say, you know, if that back month December crude or Christmas crude, as he talks about, is lower than this front month, I mean, some construe that as bullish. It's neither here nor there. I still think there's room to run. Kudos to Tim, by the way, that's been on this energy trade for a while. I understand what Carter's saying, and he's probably going to wind up being right. I think in the short term, though, there's still room to the upside. And we've talked about it now seemingly since October when many of these names made huge double bottoms, not least of which ExxonMobil. Uh, but PSX, for example, we've talked about the levered energy plays. Just look at that name since October. <clears throat> 45, huge double bottom, 72 now. I think it could trade up to th- that 85 level we saw back, I think, on June 5th. And, you know, that's one of the names that analysts haven't said anything about for a while. I think the last analyst upgrader note was on November 5th in PSX. So although Carter's going to be right, I think over the next couple of weeks, there's still room to the upside in these names. I hate to ask this question, though, uh, but, Dan, is, is this in some way a dash for trash, given where the markets are and, and the, the search for the next play here? Yeah, so when you think about the XLE, we know that they're heavily weighted towards Exxon and Chevron. You look at Exxon, and, you know, Guy mentioned that double bottom um, that we saw in crude and related names, but Exxon's still 25 or 20, 20 or so percent from its June highs here, so there's still a lot of room to go. So if you're playing for beta, it could be there, especially when you see crude moving around the way it is. And I'll just throw in, put in that ISM manufacturing number this morning, which was much better than expected near two-year highs. You talk about inputs going into manufacturing. Obviously, crude oil is one of them. So you could make a near-term bullish case that manufacturing and a whole host of other industries opening up, despite the fact that there's still lots of COVID around and lots of mitigation attempts, that it's probably going to be something that's not just a one- or two-month trend, but you're likely to see into Q2. Right. And, but, of course, we also have to remember that uh, along with the increased restrictions around the world, including here in the United States and Germany and Japan and London, the UK, I should say, um, that China, there's basically not a COVID problem anymore, Tim. I mean, that is the story of an economy that has pretty much recovered. Yeah, and they had a slightly weaker uh, manufacturing number earlier in the week. But but yes, uh, I think that's part of the story. It's part of where OPEC is, is trying to balance uh, short-term weakness to where they think medium-term there is a recovery. And that's why I think uh, Saudi's unilateral move, again, this came on a day when earlier in the day OPEC Plus, which includes Russia, um, found some unanimity and didn't cut, kept the same levels that, that, or didn't, didn't raise. There was some expectation you could have another 500,000 barrels out there. So this was a doubly good day. And it, go back to, you know, Dan's talking about demand side. Uh, I think supply side is still a lot more important for oil. Uh, the fact that it appears that there's at least been some uh, you know, union, some some meeting of the minds uh, and, and a more uh, you know, heavily consensus OPEC than we've seen in a long time. And back to the stocks, um, look, oil services, if you look at $50 oil, um, that's great for U.S. shale producers. So yeah, first of all, I think, you know, the EOGs of the world, these guys talked about the integrated names, but certainly this is very good for the U.S. And in the short run, uh, I think Russia probably hates this deal, but Saudi's taking the pain. Uh, But I think in in the medium term, this is great for oil services. I've talked about being long Schlumberger. Last time oil closed above 55 on Brent, Schlumberger was a $34 stock. Uh, That kind of linear analysis doesn't always work. 
work, except for the fact that since that last time, Schlumberger is more cash flow positive and I think has done a lot to actually uh, kind of refocus their business to the oil market they have now based upon fundamentals. So I like the energy trade. It's outperformed XLE to the S&P by about 10 weeks. Guy talked about these levels and Dan did too in the double bottom. So I think these, you stay there. Karen, do you think you could find value in the oil market? And, and if we had a crystal ball and I said oil is going to stay, WTI is going to stay at around 50 bucks a barrel for the rest of the year, does that change the equation for you? Yeah, I would be skeptical that it would. But let's say you were to say that and it were to be true, then, yeah, I think that there is probably a lot of places to look. And you talked about the dash for trash. I think if you had steady it almost doesn't matter, you know, above some band what price, but steady price for a long enough time. The levered ones, I think, would really do well. All that having been said, I'm skeptical of this holding together. And I think that there it used to be there was the highest correlation between GDP growth and oil. And I think that's weakening somewhat. So I also feel like I've missed the trade. Kudos to Tim. He got it right. And so I'm not inclined to jump in here. I'm sort of in Carter's camp. Guy, it, it struck me as amazing that Carter started off his hit uh, saying that oil basically has erased all of the pandemic losses, that it's back to where it was pre-pandemic. In your view, should it be there? Well, you have to then say, should it have ever been, you know, back to the low 20s? And mm -hmm. the, the answer is probably no. I mean, you could have make a compelling argument that it should have fallen, obviously, March, April, May but not nearly as precipitously as it did. And there were a lot of things going on. Remember, you know, again, I, th this is not a political show, but unfortunately we get dragged into it. You know, there was a time last year or, or late last year, early this year, President Trump was calling for lower oil prices. The prices were too high. And then oil got obliterated. And then magically it was, you know, he wanted oil prices to go higher because it was hurting uh, some of our shale producers. So there was a lot of I'll use the word shenanigans going on in terms of the actual price of oil. So to answer your question, it should have never been as low as it was, and I think it's probably correctly priced here. I think to Tim's point quickly, oil stocks can do very well if the commodity were to flatline, even go slightly lower over the next couple of weeks. And I think that's the environment that we find ourselves in. Is oil now, is, is oil a barometer, and this is the sort of the question that I had asked Carter, Tim, is oil a barometer of economic health anymore? I guess I could ask, has it ever uh, been in the past year or so? Yeah. Sorry for my mic issues before. I, I, I think oil as a measure of risk and where we're going, uh, I think, with broader macro, uh, oil is a function of the dollar. Oil is a function of where rates are going. Oil is a function of reflation. And then oil is a function of the rest of the world recovering and a look to where we're going to be. So uh, I don't think it's as much about you know, how much risk do you want to take on. I think it's more about um, we've rotated and we, we've actually moved into some of these names that were long-term underperformers. And, and I think that's the bigger part of the story. All right. By the way, Goldman Sachs has a couple of big oil stocks it thinks could gain uh, another 20 percent or so, so this year. You can read about it exclusively on our website. Head on over to CNBC.com slash pro to sign up. Let's turn out to the other big story today, the race for Georgia's two Senate seats. Polls for the runoffs close in less than two hours. For more on what is at stake, let's get to Elon Moy. who's got the latest. Elon. Melissa, Georgia officials say that all systems are running smoothly so far and that the public should have confidence in the reliability of the results. The average wait time at the ballot box is just one minute. And as of this afternoon, only one polling place reported a line longer than 20 minutes. We want to reiterate, don't self-suppress your vote if you feel like it's not going to count. 
if you care about who wins these elections, one way or the other, please turn out and vote. Uh, as you've seen, we have relatively short lines in most places, so that it should be easy for you. Now, the state says that it did set a record for early voting. The official tally was 3.1 million ballots cast, and they can start counting those once the polls close at 7 p.m. Now, the candidates spent the day greeting campaign workers, though Senator David Perdue does remain in quarantine after being exposed to COVID. But both parties acknowledge that this election is going to come down to turnout. This is all about mobilization rather than persuasion. Democrats have been encouraged by the uptick in black voters so far. They drove about 31 percent of the early voting. That's up two percentage points from the final tally in the general election. Republicans, they're pointing to a strong showing in North Georgia, where President Trump was campaigning last night. So, Melissa, this is a race that is clearly going to come down to the wire. And officials are saying we may not know who won tonight. And it could still be a couple of days before we see the final results. Is it going to be is it going to come down, Elon, to just straight up numbers or is there a margin of error in which case uh, the results may not be clear? Yeah, so if the final margin of error is 0.5 percent or less, then either candidate can, presumably the losing candidate, would request uh, a recount, has that ability to do that uh, within two days after the state certifies the election results. So that process could take place throughout the month of January if this margin is razor thin, as we do expect it to be. All right. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy in Washington following the uh, Georgia runoffs. Karen, you know, yesterday we spent a great deal of time in the show talking about the various scenarios uh, under which you would either change your portfolio or not. Ultimately, though, does who wins the Senate, does that change your, let's say, even a one-year outlook for stocks or any particular sectors? I think the most, uh, if I could pinpoint the change, it would maybe be infrastructure. So when I think about if the two seats were to go blue, then I think Biden has a potential window for an infrastructure plan. And, you know, I was looking at something like a URI as it traded today. At one point, it was up $9, which was a, a lot. And I think uh, maybe that was saying we expect uh, a blue wave. So in terms of taxes or the market, I think the knee-jerk reaction in blue wave would be down. But I do think stimulus and maybe infrastructure uh, would, would put a floor under that. And I would be buying if it did sell off on a blue wave. Same question to you, Dan. Yeah, so I guess the real question is whether you think increased fiscal stimulus, increased uh, infrastructure spending would outweigh higher taxes at some point. If Biden were to have the edge with the Senate, he basically has one really big legislative thing to do. We know in the Trump administration they got taxes. We know that Obama um, got health care. And that was pretty much it. Um, if you don't have the Senate and you don't have the House, you can't get things done. And the likelihood that they had the Senate and the House um, would only be until the midterms anyway. Way. So I just don't think they're going to raise taxes in the middle of this recovery. So I'm kind of more in Karen's camp that infrastructure spending would be the thing. And then just a massive continued increase of that money supply, which is obviously good for risk assets. Infrastructure spending would, would be a, a huge boost to the economy at a time when it needs it so desperately, Guy. But at the same time, um, one centerpiece of the Democratic agenda is, is tackling income inequality. And that, for them, is part of the reason why you want tax reform. <laughs> 
They should tackle and come. I mean, and this is only an hour show, so I can't wax poetic as to why the policies of our of central banks have created this wealth inequality that you talk about. But in terms of the trade, I look at it this way. The U.S. dollar is going to go lower, in my opinion, in 2021. If there's a blue sweep this evening, it's just going to go down faster. And the trades that worked late last, late last year, early last year, these resource trades, which you've seen, obviously, over the last couple of weeks, They'll just work a lot faster as well. So that's how I look at it. Dollar goes lower in 2021. It goes lower faster if they were to sweep this evening. Tim? Well, and if the dollar breaks this 88, 89 level, there's there's a real line down to 80, 81. So wow. um, not overnight. And I don't think a move on the dollar would be, you know, that would be unhealthy. Um, but I do think this is something we need to watch. Yep. Coming up, a China crackdown. Regulators reportedly pressuring Jack Ma to hand over troves of consumer credit data collected from Ant Group. We'll bring you the full details on what it means for the stock straight ahead. And later, we're hitting the car lot as auto sales numbers for 2020 roll in. We'll bring you the trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. We're watching shares of Alibaba dropping after hours on some news just breaking out of Washington. Deidre Bose has got the latest D. Hey, Melissa, pressure not just in China, but over here as well. Reuters is reporting that President Trump on Tuesday, that's today, signed an executive order banning transactions with eight Chinese software applications, including Alipay. And that is part of Ant Group, Jack Ma's company that has been under so much pressure over in China. Of course, we know that its IPO was pulled just days before it was set to go public. Regulators are looking at breaking up the business. And not long ago, Melissa, but an hour ago, we had fresh headlines from The Wall Street Journal saying that Chinese regulators are seeking consumer data from Ant Group, citing official sources over there. So, uh, Melissa, the con- pressure continues to be heaped on, although I'm not sure that many were expecting it to be heaped on on this side of the world in the United States. However, this also isn't the first time that President Trump and his administration have taken aim at Alibaba and Ant. Um, There have been talks in the past about perhaps limiting its cloud reach and Alipay. uh, Certainly, there has been talks about limiting its reach in the U.S. as well as Tencent's WePay. But remember here that not a lot of Americans actually use Alipay. It's mostly used by Chinese tourists who come over to the United States and spend money. So it's unclear what this actually means for the bottom line. But of course, it's just more pressure on top of that company. Was the U.S. Deidre seen as a growth, potential growth market for Alipay? I'm just trying to figure out um, how investors are interpreting this in, in terms of if you cut off all the transactions, all the Alipay transactions in the United States, how would you mention it wouldn't impact it. But in the future, was that a source of, of growth for, for yes. the company? <laughs> That's a great point. Yes. And when this was being discussed a few months ago, it was seen as hurting the growth prospects. But remember, Melissa, that's also when Ant Group was valued at above $300 billion. Its valuation now is thought to be around $100 billion. It has far larger problems in the Chinese mainland than it does in terms of growth expansion elsewhere. So, yes, it does potentially hurt those expansion uh, aims and ambitions, which we know that Ant Group has had in the past, but they've got, uh, let's say, far bigger fish to fry at home. I I also want to ask you about this journal story that dropped in the afternoon about regulators, Chinese regulators, going after Ant Group to share its credit card uh, usage debt or or credit files on consumers with the regulators and what that could do to Ant Group. As I understand it, Ant has already scaled back in terms of extending credit 
uh, and lowering credit limits for its customers. Mm -hmm. This is key because remember also that its credit business has actually grown larger in terms of revenue than its payments business. Alipay is where it started, but credit has really been more lucrative and the whole reason behind that $300 billion plus valuation. So, yes, more pressure on this area of the business. Um, The Journal is reporting that Chinese regulators are aiming to have access to it by forcing Ant Group to potentially report into a credit ratings agency, either directly controlled or associated with China's central bank. And remember that Ant Group has access to so much data. It is, you know, in some cases even bigger than the banks, the national banks over there. They have access to consumer habits, to loan data. Mm -hmm. And in the past, in previous years, Jack Ma has said, has really resisted these calls to share more of that kind of data with Beijing. But of course, his position right now is far more compromised than it ever has been. He's laying low under all the pressure. So probably less room to bargain. Um, And again, it's just another hit for Ant Group. When you think about it, Melissa, just a few months ago on the eve of its blockbuster IPO, how far it's fallen and really uncertain at this point how it gets back up. Yeah. What a turn of events. Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa, or Debo, as she's known on this show. Um, Let's talk about uh, the efforts uh, by regulators to break that monopoly on the data Ant Group holds. It wants to break the monopoly on the business it has in China for fear that it will replace or circumvent the banking system. And here it is also trying to break the monopoly on the consumer data it seems to hold as well. Tim, does this change the calculus? We've said for a long time that, that basically, you know, Ant... It doesn't even count in the in the market cap of this company, in the valuation of the of the company right now. That it's already well, discounted. I, I, it. I think so. part. Yeah, I think part of the move of, of Alibaba up to three twenty ish, and Debo outlined where the the valuation of of Ant Financial has has, has plummeted. Um, is kind of in the stock. I, I, I think, yes, it was also not really given credit on, on uh, efficiently on the way up. But anyway, uh, what, what do you do with Alibaba here? Because, um, look, as someone that's invested and lived in emerging markets and seen uh, companies get attacked by the state, whether it's been in Latin America or in Russia, um, you know, I'd actually rather see Alibaba as an investor, not, not as a citizen of the world, um, give in. And, and Jack Ma actually let the Chinese government have their way here because ultimately you don't want to go toe to toe here. You're going to lose. Um, and I don't think ultimately this is going to have to come down to that. Um, but seeing the 100 banks that essentially Ant Financial deals with on the underlying uh, consumers having to obey, I think the banks themselves are, are going to obey with the Chinese government. Ultimately, Ant Financial will have to as well. Um, and, and, and look, I, I think owning Alibaba uh, long term and buying this weakness is what you want to do here. The headlines, look, every day is a roller coaster. Uh, but this is a fantastic company, at least as it exists today uh, and in an incredible position. Don't worry about those U.S. headlines. I, I don't think it matters what what we do to this company here. Yeah. I mean, it's already facing enough pressure in China. I mean, David, it was stunning when David Faber came on Squawk on the Street this morning with a report that Jack Ma is not missing. That was the news, that he was not missing. He's hanging out in Hangzhou, where the headquarters of Alibaba, just, you know, laying low. And the headline was that he is not missing because there was concern that nobody had seen him since that famous October speech where he criticized regulation in China, which got the company into so much trouble. So, Karen, where do you stand right now? Because when I heard that regulators wanted data, I immediately thought, I wonder if the U.S. is going to interpret that as the government getting a hold of data, so helping the government in some way, and that may be construed as... 
not ESG, um, you know, helping the state in some fashion, and, and it may land the company on some sort of blacklist. I mean, I guess I, they seem to be on every Chinese company of size, I think, seems to be on one right now here. And obviously there, Baba is squarely in the crosshairs. But I mean, when you, you brought up a point that I think is really interesting, Alibaba, the valuation of Ant embedded when Alibaba is about five or maybe even less percent right now of its overall valuation. So it seems to be getting penalized again and again and again for hits to Ant Financial. So it's just the environment that we're in. I agree with Tim on just about everything Tim said about you know, complying would, as an investor is probably a very good thing and that I want to own it here. I want to own it for the long term. And I think, you know, it's definitely not fun to see the bad headlines every other day, but actually is interesting. $30 billion of market cap today uh, because Jack Ma wasn't missing. That was as much as, as their ant financial stake. So it is definitely a roller coaster, but I am in it for the long term. Yeah, Baba shares, by the way, pairing their, pairing their losses after hours now down 1.8%. We've got a lot more fast money. Uh, here's what's coming up next. Will the semi surge continue? A top tech analyst joins us next to dip into the chip space. Plus, it's a fast food frenzy. The chicken sandwich wars are heating up, but our investors loving it. We've got that and a lot more when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money, breaking news out of the IPO market. Let's get to Leslie Picker with the details. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. I am hearing from three sources that Oatly is planning a 2021 IPO that could raise about $1 billion this year. The company has mandated Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, and Credit Suisse to run the deal, those sources say. Uh, this company has an interesting uh, allotment of uh, bedfellows as backers, Blackstone, uh, as well as celebrities including Oprah, Jay-Z, Natalie Portman, all have invested in Oatly in July. Uh, this company was valued at $2 billion in its latest round. Oatly declined to comment on its plans for an IPO. Uh, but again, Melissa, that IPO pipeline remains very full despite last year's record-breaking level of issuance. Back over to you. Leslie, thank you. It seems like Jay-Z and Oprah would be a winning ticket. Show of hands, traders. I'm curious. Do any of you <laughs> consume oat milk? Nobody raised their hand. Okay, if but if I have to, if I have oh, to. We, so we are not the demographic for oat milk, is my point. <laughs> Who Karen, is? Who is? Because you got a couple yes. drinkers in your house. Well, my kids are. Exactly. Yes, I have Oatly in my refrigerator right now. Yeah, I have two kids who are vegetarians. <laughs> they love Oatly. I, they're talking about this billion dollar that they want to raise. I have no idea what valuation that'll be. I don't know. It sort of seems like it could be, you know, a Beyond Meat-like frenzy. I mean, it's There's the same. Market here, it's the same sure. drivers. I feel like. Dan would relate to this trade, but it's, it's sort of the same <laughs> investment thesis as a Beyond Meat. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I, I do think that, you know, Karen just mentioned two of her, you know, young children, or, or I guess they're in their teens or whatever, you know, don't eat meat. There's, there's you know, there's a lot of people who don't eat dairy. I mean, th this is something that th this generationally is a thing. So you just have to decide what you're willing to kind of pay for this potential future trend of a bunch of finicky uh, consumers. 
I cannot wait for the day when we do the taste test, Di. You, you get yourself ready for that oat, oat ah. taste test. <laughs> Let's switch gears here. This system won't handle that. I, exactly. Let's switch gears here, taking a look at Intel surging more than 2% today. The chipmaker is now up nearly 8% since Dan Loeb's activist hedge fund third point urged Intel to explore strategic alternatives. So is this turnaround story for real? Let's bring in Jeffrey's tech sector specialist, Jared Weisfeld. Jared, great to have you with us. That's the question that we asked the day that we learned that Dan Loeb was activist in this name. In terms of what he wants this, the company to do, do you think those things are achievable and can actually trigger that turnaround? So thanks for having me again. Uh, let's put them. Let's put some things in perspective here. So uh, Intel is on multi-year all-time lows versus the SMH, the underlying semiconductor index. It trades at about ten times earnings versus the comp group at about twenty. So call it half the multiple. So an agent of change certainly makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I, I would certainly highlight that the the issues. Are, are, are more structural than not from a fundamental standpoint. And it really is centered around uh, two aspects, which are, are certainly very intertwined from my perspective. The first is um, process technology leadership, or lack thereof, and, uh, and competitive landscape. So Intel has all, always been the leader from a Moore's law, law standpoint. And for those less familiar, it's all about just cramming as many transistors on a piece of silicon as possible. And they lost that lead to Taiwan Semiconductor um, a little bit ago. And at this point, Intel is struggling to get 10 nanometer silicon out while TSM is putting out five nanometer silicon for Apple's iPhone. So you've got a fundamental problem from a process technology standpoint, and that's going to take years and you know tens of billions plus to go ahead and fix. And the other is, is mm-hmm. he- sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, Jared. The other is competitive. Um, it's not just share loss versus uh, versus AMD on the traditional CPU side, but it's also parallel compute. When you think about uh, NVIDIA GPUs and AMD GPUs, graphic processor units taking share as artificial intelligence and machine learning enter the realm for next-gen compute, that's eating at core CPU demand. And lastly is their own customers are designing their own silicon. A lot of MFANG in terms of Microsoft and Google and Amazon, they're all designing their own silicon. So those are all headwinds, but the good news is there is an agent of change and the underlying semiconductor market does remain healthy heading into 2021. I thought the manufacturing point was interesting because uh, what Dan Loeb was pointing out was that it was a matter of national security for Intel to improve its manufacturing and keep it here in the United States. When that was seen as sort of, as you mentioned, it was a problem in the latest quarter that are reported, and it was thought that perhaps by outsourcing the newest technology, the newest chips in terms of the manufacturing, that that would actually help Intel a lot. So that it seemed like conflicting, conflicting uh, solutions to the same problem. Yeah, it, it's a great point because on one hand, outsourcing could potentially uh, solve some of those problems, but at the same time. There's no really capacity that's out there. It's really just Taiwan Semiconductor that has that capacity for the leading edge silicon. So maybe over the long term, that's an option. But to your point, national security, bringing the semiconductor industry onshore has bipartisan support. Regardless of what happens tonight in Georgia with the, with the Senate, if the Dems can flip or not, you've got bipartisan support to bring domestic manufacturing for semiconductors onshore. We recently passed the CHIPS Act as part of the defense bill. So you've got bipartisan support. I find it hard to imagine that the government's going to let Intel raise their white flag and give up from a process technology standpoint and exit leading edge manufacturing. Jared, it's Karen. Let me just uh, ask you a question. It used to be that the semiconductors would trade, the multiples would get lower in boom times. 
Now it looks like that's multiple gets higher in every time. Does that concern you about the whole space? Sure. Hey, Karen. Um, th that's not necessarily idiosyncratic to uh, to semiconductors. I, I, I totally hear you from that vantage point. But, you know, the market is certainly elevated from a multiple standpoint. And the thing to keep in mind and the reason why, you know, semiconductors from a subsector perspective continues to remain uh, my preferred subsector within uh, within TMT from a portfolio construction standpoint. And when you think about heading into 2021, it's the same ingredients that existed at the back half of 2020 are, I think are going to persist into 2021. You've got the yield curve steepening, you've got uh, inventories that are lean, you've got a cyclical recovery in broad-based demand such as industrial and automotive, compute remains healthy. When you think about all of that work from home capacity that was put in place into 2020, that's gonna persist in terms of, even in a post-COVID world, work from home, work from anywhere is gonna be pervasive. So I think a lot of those demand drivers are gonna exist. And when you think about the yield curve steepening, you see the 10 year approaching 1%, the 210 spread now above 80 basis points, traditionally semiconductors outperform in the context of a, of a uh, treasury curve that's steepening. All right, Jared, great to see you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Jared Weisfeld of Jefferies. And speaking of semi-stocks, last night, Jim Cramer laid out some investable themes for the new year. He laid out 10 big ideas, and one of them was digitization. He pointed to two big chip names in particular, AMD and NVIDIA. So let's trade uh, all of these stocks, whether it be Intel, AMD, or, or NVIDIA. Guy? AMD. And we've talked about this for a while. I mean, we talked about Lisa Sue being one of the best CEOs out there. And we've talked about it for the last year and a half, I think, in terms of the stock. And it's interesting that he mentioned White Flag. I mean, that was a great song in 2003, if you recall. I do. But Intel, I mean, I'm not saying they're waving it, but they might as well because the world is absolutely passing by. I see what Dan Loeb's doing. He's hoping to get a pop in a stock that is undervalued, cheap on valuation. I get all those things, but it's cheap for a reason. Negative EPS growth and a disastrous data center business. They report on the 21st. It's not going to be good. So, I guess you could be an Intel for a pop. I think AMD is a much better place still. Or was the pop, did it happen? <laughs> that up 8% certainly outperformed the broader markets, Dan. Yeah, I, listen, I, I think it's really um, a restructuring story. And I think we probably could have said that about Intel about 10 times over the last five years. But now with Loeb there, we talked about this when that announcement came out. He's pretty good at sniffing these stories out. I just mentioned this. Keep an eye on NVIDIA. You know, people seem very bold up um, about the semiconductor sector here. Lots of different trends um, going on and make these things look exciting and people not so worried about valuation. But NVIDIA's got a $330 billion market cap. Um, it trades at about 17 times sales, trades about 46 times earnings. This stock has not made a new high since its all-time high in September 6th. So it's gone sideways here. You could look at it and say it acts kind of weak. It might be telling you something, or it looks like the way um, Apple and Microsoft did before they just broke out of their multi-month consolidations. But to me, the way NVIDIA goes could be the way that the semiconductors go for the next two, three months or so. All right. Coming up. Is it time to drive into the auto stocks or should you tap the brakes? Look at what is to come in 2021 next and later. Will the golden rally continue? Options traders are betting big on just that. The trade and more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Auto stocks on the move today as quarterly sales numbers rolled in. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the details. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa, we're just getting the numbers from uh, Autodata, which crunches all of these, and they say that the December sales rate, 16.38 million vehicles. 
hey, that's been pretty darn strong relative to what we've seen since COVID-19 really hit the industry back at the beginning of this year. So the fourth quarter numbers, and that's largely what we got from the automakers today, they reflect that you saw some strength from Volkswagen as well as General Motors. General Motors, two times better than what analysts were expecting. Yeah, we saw some weakness from Honda and from Nissan. But overall, when you look at the fourth quarter, it's much of what we've seen building over the second and the third quarter. Pickups and SUVs remain in high demand, and that's why you've got a tight inventory, especially with those models. And the pricing, because of that tight inventory, near record highs. Take a look at General Motors. This is a good example of the type of pricing that the industry experienced. For the fourth quarter, the price for the average transaction a record, 41886 Think about that, 41886 That is the average vehicle price General Motors had in the fourth quarter. I remember, Melissa, when it used to be 34000 35000 So there is profitability driving through there. A couple other stocks we want to look at. Fiat Chrysler, Ram fourth quarter pickup sales down 5%. And then you've got Toyota with its December sales, not reporting on a full quarter basis, but its December sales up 7.5%. Bottom line is this, Melissa, you continue to see strength for the automakers, in part because of that tight demand, but also because there's just, or a tight market in inventory, but there's just a lot of demand out there, and it continues to be extremely strong when it comes to full-size pickup trucks as well as SUVs. I'm guessing, Phil, that the automakers no longer have to include incentives? Well, there are incentives out there. I mean, uh-huh. it's not hard to find 0% financing. Are they as lucrative and as rich as we've seen in the past? Like rebates no. and things and like that, you know. You will find that uh-huh. on, on certain models. But, but look, if you go out there and you say, I want a full-size pickup truck and I want it loaded XYZ, you're going to be very hard to find a deal out there. You'll find some, but certainly not what you would see in a much slower market. All right. Phil, thank you. Philabo, that is stunning, an average uh, transaction price that hit a record in the fourth quarter. By the way, we want to uh, also tell you about this, uh, this uh, price target increase over at Morgan Stanley for shares of Tesla. Those shares are moving higher by about 2% after hours. Um, this dropped in the afternoon. More Adam Jonas at Morgan Stanley raising his price target to 810 from 540 back in November. So basically adjusting for the massive run. 810 is not too much higher from where it is right now, 60 bucks higher. Um, but he said a lot of things have happened since that uh, November upgrade. It raised capital. It was included in the S&P 500. He also didn't have a number of factories uh, included in the model. And so it's an adjustment for the volume increase that he anticipates will happen in terms of sales for, for Tesla. Uh, Guy Dami, in the auto space, what's the, your top trade? Well, you know, Tim and Karen have spoken about this. You put a nine multiple on the $6 GM's going to earn, and nine multiple is not unreasonable. You have a $54 stock. But I'll go back to Carvana, and Dan Nathan did a wonderful job illustrating some of these stocks a couple weeks ago. Carvana went from basically, I think, 292 or thereabouts down to uh, 230 in a straight line from December 22nd. I think that 21% is enough of a sell-off. I think that's going to bounce. It bounced today. Uh, GM is interesting. Carvana, to me, is more interesting on the upside. Tim? Well, the multiple, you know, guy says nine multiple. Why shouldn't this be uh, a 13, 14, 15 multiple? That's right. It's the most profitable uh, automaker out there. They've continued to raise uh, their profitability. Gross margin has been growing. And, and we know about their foray, and it's not a new foray into EV. And then we had the, the news on the Chevy Cruze and the Autonomous about a month ago. So uh, the, the multiple re-rating for GM for a company that's not been scared to close down unprofitable businesses, to me, why you want to own GM and why I own it. All right. Coming up. 
Shining bright, gold prices hitting two-year highs today. And we spotted a trade that suggests they're going higher from here. We'll bring you the details. Plus, McDonald's making a big bet on white meat. <laughs> the company just raised the stakes in the chicken sandwich wars and whether it will pay off when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out gold hitting its highest level in nearly two months. The move comes as the dollar continues to slide. Mike co-spotted some interesting activity in the options market that points to more gains ahead. Mike, what to see? Yeah, so we were taking a look at GLD. This is the ETF that tracks gold, and it traded more than two times the average daily options volume, very nearly three times its average daily call volume. And the most active options were the January 185 calls. Those are the calls that expire one week from this coming Friday, over 50,000 of those calls traded at about $1.54 a piece. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the price of GLD will exceed that strike by at least the $1.54 they paid. That would put GLD, the ETF, above levels that we haven't seen since last August. Wow. Mike, thanks for that. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Yep, it's back. Coming up, McDonald's upping its game in the chicken sandwich war. What its new menu items could mean in the battle for your fuck, fuck, fuck. That was a chicken noise. Uh, with much more pass money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. At McDonald's, the bird is the word. The fast food restaurant is adding not one, not two, but three new chicken sandwiches. Starting next month, consumers will be able to buy the crispy chicken sandwich, the spicy chicken sandwich, and the deluxe chicken sandwich. So are you loving this move? And before you start ragging on, like, why is chicken revolutionary? Why is this a new menu item? Why is this so, it's such a big deal? It's just chicken. Think back to when they had their spicy nuggets promotion in September. It led to the highest U.S. comp sales in a decade, Guy. So basically, this is like a big chicken nugget in a bun. Yeah, I mean, that sounds great. And, and there was that, and they had that one guy that was like their spokesperson, right, that had that whole thing they rolled out. See, I hearken back to the day when you would go to the McDonald's, and on the board it would be a cheeseburger, a burger, fries, you know. Very simple for somebody like me. Not a lot of decisions have to be made. I, I, would, I would like to go back to the Ray Kroc McDonald's, but I understand that's a bygone era. Three chicken sandwiches to me is overkill. Just my opinion. You know, you give people too many choices, they make none. Uh, I still like the stock, but I ain't racing there to get one of their spicy chicken sandwiches. I don't know. Spicy, regular, and deluxe is really confusing. But uh, Dan, Dan, certainly they're finally entering the competition, you know, entering a pool where there's a lot of competition. There are a lot of chicken sandwiches out there. But maybe, maybe McDonald's is like Apple. You don't have to be the first one with a Walkman out. You just have to make it better than the rest. Yeah, I, listen, I think when it comes to fast food, there's one chicken sandwich to rule them all, and that is the Chick-fil-A. And so you don't want to be late to this game competing with Chick-fil-A as they're expanding all over the country from um, the southeast. Um, you know, listen, people go to McDonald's for other things. I don't think they're going to be looking at the uh, at the chicken variety to drive a lot of traffic. But, you know, this stock, for some reason, this and, and Domino's, very interestingly, you know, they were thought to be work from home or school from home or whatever that is. They've really side, uh, gone sideways for the last few months here. Up next, you're fine. That's the last time I will ever compare McDonald's to Apple. Last time. Up next, your final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. 
seller of oat milk, but definitely a buyer of GM and their profitability and a multiple that I think is moving higher. GM. Dan. Yeah, you know, Sirius XM, it's kind of related to that car thing, but the story is not about cars anymore. To me, I think this is a very underloved media property, Sirius XM. Karen. Yeah, one of the categories that Jim liked was stock picking and asset management. And I like Morgan Stanley. They've done an incredibly great job of creating a behemoth in asset management. More to come. Cheap valuation. Guy, I can't wait to do the uh, chicken sandwich test. Look forward to that. No, nor can I. I it's going to be just amazing. And the oat milk on top and liquid fire. Jeez, what, what could possibly go wrong? Nothing. Newmont Mining, I think it's headed back to 70 bucks. <laughs> Thanks for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.